director from Indianapolis at Redeemer. Um, and I said that right, right? I didn't mess that up? Sweet. All right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, let's give him a warm welcome, warm City Hope welcome. Thank you. Oh, this does work with the mask on. Um, I am going to take it off, though. Good morning. Good morning, family. One of the things I love about being a Christian and knowing Jesus is that even though I don't know you all very well, I can still say good morning, family, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. This is my first time in Muncie. Um, Yeah, here we go. Um, Some Muncie fans in Muncie. Um, (laughs) uh, My family, we just moved from the D.C. area uh, to Indianapolis uh, in end of June, so about two and a half months ago. So my wife, Neva, we have two boys, a three-and-a-half-year-old Felix and an 18-month-old Caius. Uh, We moved out here to pursue the work of church planting, which I think some of you all know something about. Um, So we moved out here to pursue the work of church planting with Redeemer, and so we are currently doing a uh, two-year residency there uh, with the goal uh, at the end of the two years we'll have figured out where and how and what and who uh, will be involved in a new church plant work somewhere in the city. Uh, and so that's uh, why we came. That's why we feel uh, called here to the Indianapolis area. And we're just so privileged to be here and it's a joy to be with you all um, this morning. It's been a, been a pretty big season of transition uh, moving. Uh, we've never lived in the Midwest, you know, uh, so it's been a pretty big season of transition and um, thinking about all that we left behind and coming to here. In the midst of our transition, uh, my father passed away suddenly, uh, unexpectedly, uh, a couple months ago. So that's been a lot to navigate. Uh, but I was actually ministered to this morning on the way uh, up the stairs, coming up here. And you have all those signs, right, on the stairwell. I loved all those signs. And one of them said, uh, don't look back, you're not going that way. And it was just a reminder that uh, the Lord places callings on our life and we can follow him and trust him and, you know, don't need to look back and regret uh, whatever we may have left behind. Um, Enough about me. Enough about me. Let's get to work. So I want to invite you to uh, open your Bibles and your apps to Matthew chapter 9. And uh, I forgot my preaching Bible at church, so I grabbed this thing off the bookshelf, this big cumbersome thing this morning that we'll be reading from. Uh, Matthew chapter 9. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can go to the Google and type in Matthew chapter 9. You'll have lots of options. Um, Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew 9 together and read from verses 35 to 38, which are uh, beautiful verses about the compassion of our Lord and the mission of the church. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word now. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do ask that even now you would fill us with your spirit and give us the humility we need to sit under your word together. 
Please remove any pride in us that would make us think we can sit over your word and judge it for ourselves. This we ask for Christ's sake and his glory. Amen. We find in this passage a unique characteristic of our Lord, one that all of his disciples must also have. And that is a deep, deep compassion from the gut. You'll know more what I mean by that in just a minute. But this morning we want to answer four questions about the compassion of Jesus from this text. Four questions. Number one, what is it? Number two, why should we show it? Number three, who will give it? And four, how do we get it? What is it? Why should we show it? Who will give it? And how do we get it? So let's jump in. Number one, what is it? Can you recall a time in your life where you were compelled towards someone or something in a deep, perhaps unexplainable or inescapable way? Maybe you've made a life decision about a job or a house or a move, and it was a choice that was motivated from somewhere deep down inside of you, a choice where in that moment you knew it wasn't really a choice because you were so compelled toward this action or toward this person that it was impossible for you to do otherwise. Maybe that's how you felt or have felt about a spouse or a loved one. Maybe it's how you felt about a child Maybe you can recall a time seeing someone in need and you felt so drawn to help them that you were willing to go to the end of your own resources to help them. Maybe it was a sense of conviction about doing the right thing, like standing up for a coworker or a neighbor or holding fast to your own beliefs despite the consequences. I trust and I hope that each one of us can recall a moment like this in our lives, although I'm sure we would all be willing to admit that they're rarer than we would like them to be. As I thought about this question myself, a few moments and decisions came to mind, such as sensing a call to go into ministry, or marrying my wife, or the first time I held my children at the hospital. Such moments in my life were characterized by a magnetic force from deep down inside of me that drew me toward these people or these actions in a way that I could not resist. This is the level of compassion we see characterized in our Savior. But unlike our fleeting desires and convictions, the deep well of Christ's compassion never runs dry. In our passage, we read that Jesus was going about Galilee teaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and performing great deeds of mercy. These actions are characteristics of his ministry. When he was not in prayer, or training his boneheaded disciples, or arguing with religious leaders, you could bet you would have found him out and about among the people, teaching, healing, and showing mercy. Such a life was ex- of external deeds was motivated by what is internal to the person of Jesus Christ. 
Matthew says that when Jesus looked upon the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. In his wonderful essay, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, 20th century theologian B.B. Warfield said that it is this emotion, that of compassion, which we find most frequently attributed to Jesus. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon also once said in agreement, quote, if you would sum up the whole character of Christ in reference to ourselves, it might be gathered into this one sentence, he was moved with compassion, end quote. Now the word that is used here to describe Christ's compassion is an interesting one. Biblical authors often used physical parts of our bodies to describe inward spiritual Realities. Now, I think we all are familiar with this to, to one degree or another, because in the scriptures, it's often said that the heart is the center of our loves, of our affections, and our desires. We're not unfamiliar with this because this is something that's even common to our day, as we often use expressions like brokenhearted to describe when we're really sad or overcome with grief. Well, the word that's used here for compassion is similar. As a noun, it means our bowels, our most inward parts, or as we might say in our modern speeches, our gut. And so, we read of Judas in Acts 1, that when he fell headlong and died, his bowels came out. Same word. But this word was also commonly used to describe deep emotions of mercy and compassion and pity and empathy. Like the heart, it is said that such a level of compassion compels us from the deepest part of our being. And so, when Paul said in Philippians 1.8, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ, he was quite literally saying, I yearn for you all with the gut of Christ. However, what makes the usage of this word and its attribution to Christ so unique is that we see it being used as a verb instead of a noun. And this sounds like I'm being nitpicky, but I'm not. This is not a small detail. As far as we can tell, such use of the word was unique to the gospel writers, and there is no evidence of it being used by other contemporary Greek writers, and there's perhaps only one use of it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so what this tells us is that when the gospel writers were trying to describe Jesus to us in their own account of him, they searched their own language and found no words adequate to describe the levels of Christ's compassion. And so they either made it up or they found a word so rare that they knew it could be used to to uniquely describe Jesus. What a sight it must have been to watch Jesus in action as he was moved with compassion, to be so moved to the depths of his own gut, to see him agitated by great needs, his face crushed with sorrow, his eyes gushing forth with heavy tears, his own body wrapping around grieving mothers, his own gut ready to burst forth with great love on the crowds which he gazed upon. 
beloved, Jesus Christ is moved with compassion. Now, we might be tempted to get this idea in our heads that behind this Jesus is a God who is angry, brooding, unpleasant, and displeased with us. This is not an idea that's uncommon to many Christians I meet, that we recognize that Christ may be full of love and grace, but behind him stands the Father as if Christ is just holding him back, as if the Father is just waiting to punish us as soon as we mess up. Let us be rid of these notions this morning, because there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus Christ. I'm going to prove it to you. If you have your Bibles open, I want to invite you to quickly turn to Luke chapter 15. This wonderful parable of the two brothers, commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. I want you to look down at verse 20. It says, When the younger brother came to himself, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and what? Felt compassion. Same verb, friends. Same verb. And who is the father in this parable intended to give us a picture of? God the Father. God the Father is moved from his innermost being, his infinite presence and his majesty and splendor. He is moved with compassion. And so in his compassion, he came to us by sending his one and only beloved son into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it through him. Beloved, Jesus Christ was not only moved with compassion, Jesus Christ is compassion. Jesus Christ is the compassion of God. He is the image of the invisible God, making compassion from the gut tangible to us, making the compassion of God tangible and real to us so that you and I and the entire world might know the infinite depths of the compassion of God. This is compassion from the gut. So why should we show it? Why should we show it? Well, we could answer this question simply and say because Christ did. And we are told in places like Romans 13 and Galatians 3 that we have and must put on Christ. We are told in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 that we are to put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image, meaning Christ, of our Creator? That's the simple answer. But a better answer might look at why Christ showed compassion to others. And so that's what we're going to try to do, even if it's quickly. We read here that Christ had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the image is that of sheep wounded and torn about so that they now lie prostrate and helpless, unable to defend themselves. Sheep with no shepherd are those who are in great danger and they are without the resources to escape the danger they find themselves in. Let's take a look at some of the other passages 
where it is said Christ is moved from his gut with compassion. You don't need to turn to these places. I just want you to listen. In Mark 141, Jesus meets a man with leprosy who comes to him and begs him saying, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched the man, an unthinkable act, and he says, I will be clean. In Luke 7, Jesus met a widow whose son had died. Having compassion on her, he dried her tears and said, weep no more. And then he raised her son from the dead. In Luke 10, we read of the parable of the Good Samaritan, of whom it is said, had great compassion on the beaten man lying in the street. The Samaritan is not only a picture of Christ's compassion for us, but is also an explicit model of the compassion from the gut we are to have for others. For Jesus ends the parable, and he says to us, go and do likewise. In Mark 8 and Matthew 15, Jesus is said to have compassion on the crowds because they have been with him three days and they have not eaten. And so what did he do? He fed them. He fed them. Again, in Matthew 14 and 20, he meets with those who are sick and blind, and he has compassion on them, and he heals them. That's just a small sample of many of the passages where Christ is moved with compassion. And why was he moved with compassion for those people, and why is he moved with compassion for us? Because he sees us in our great need and misery, and out of his great love for us, he is resolved from his innermost being not to leave us there. And so he fed the sick. He fed, or he healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He dried the eyes of the grieving, and he restored the spiritually destitute. All out of the depths of his compassion from his gut. It was his compassion which moved him to give his own life so that through his death, we would find forgiveness and eternal life with God. Seeing us in our great misery and bondage to sin, he was moved with compassion to lay down his own life so that we might find freedom in him. That, friends, is compassion from the gut. And so what about us? What about you? What about me? Will we be willing to show compassion from our guts? Maybe a better starting point for some of us is to simply ask the question, do I even like people? Do I even like people? Do I like seeing groups of people? Or are you more inclined to look out there and say, what a lot y'all are. Y'all must put the capital T in total depravity. (laughs) You know, I've commonly thought of myself as an introvert. And that's changing. That's changing. But I've commonly thought of myself as an introvert. In the sense that uh, I like to recharge my batteries when I'm alone, 
right? When I'm reading a book, when I'm working out, when I'm going for a run. If I'm being honest, I have often used being an introvert as an excuse not to spend time with people. But it's recently come to my attention that there is an important difference between being introverted and being misanthropic. The former, being introverted, is a personality type. But being misanthropic is the sin of someone who just doesn't like people. Too often, that's my sin. Many of the times I use introversion or being tired or whatever it may be as a reason to avoid people, it was because in my heart, I simply didn't like them. So what about us this morning? Do we like people? And can we earnestly say that we desire to show compassion from the gut? So who will give it? Who will give it? And the real question that I'm getting at here is what is the connection between the compassion of Christ and the mission of the church? What is the connection between the compassion of Christ and the mission of the church? And the answer I want us to see this morning is everything. It's everything. Christ has said that the crowd, the crowd were those who were like uh, sheep who were harassed and helpless. Sheep that were without a shepherd. And it's clear in this text that he is accusing the religious leaders of his day of failing in his responsibility, failing in their responsibility to shepherd the people. He's making a not-so-subtle reference to Ezekiel 34, where God rebuked the religious leaders for failing to shepherd the people. And so, upon making this accusation, Jesus gives another metaphor to his disciples to describe the problem. And he said, quote, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. While Jesus did not spell it out for them, he was speaking of people who are ripe for inclusion in the kingdom of God. They were people who had great need, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. They were ready to be brought in to the kingdom. But a crop needs workers to go to the barn, to bring the grain to the barn. And without laborers, the crop cannot be reaped. The problem was not just that those who were supposed to shepherd have failed, but that those who could shepherd are too few. What Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples is that they would be the ones to care for the sheep. His followers must be those who care for the harassed and helpless, the downtrodden and the ashamed. And while this might be a more direct application for those who we call pastors and elders and deacons and ministry leaders, it's clear from a full reading of Scripture that all followers of Christ are to be those who are sent out into the harvest. After all, Jesus commissioned all believers in Matthew 28 to go out into the whole world. And so what is the connection between the compassion of Christ and the mission of the church? It's everything. 
We can simply conclude from this short text that if Jesus had no compassion for the crowds, there would be no harvest. If Jesus had no compassion on us, he would not have been moved to do anything about our enslavement to sin and death. If there was no compassion, he would not send shepherds to tend his sheep. If there was no compassion, there would be no laborers for the harvest. Therefore, all those who claim the name of Christ are those who have been sent into the harvest bearing the compassion of Christ. Compassion from the gut. Now, we need to be careful when we study the early church and we try to draw application from them, we need to be careful not to romanticize them because they weren't perfect and we aren't either. But if you study early church history, one thing seems clear, that this was a message and a charge they seemed to understand. Despite every trial and persecution that came their way, they were known for showing deep compassion for everyone in their city, Christian or not. Now, you must understand the context into which the Christ came and the church was born. Christianity did not prosper because it simply made sense to everyone. Christianity prospered because it challenged the status quo. Whatever you might think about the Christian faith, you must be willing to acknowledge that it has turned the history of the world upside down. This is the case that is argued if you read books like Tom Holland's Dominion. He's writing, he's not a Christian. He'll tell you this. Or Rodney Stark's The Triumph of Christianity. Here's what they'll tell you. They'll tell you that in the pagan world, especially among the philosophers, mercy and compassion were regarded as character defects. They believed that mercy was opposed to justice because it involved providing unearned relief. Classical philosophers taught that mercy is not governed by reason, and therefore the desire should be curbed. It was into this world that the gospel of Jesus Christ went forward. Christianity, in opposition to the pagan religions and philosophies of its day, taught that mercy was a primary virtue. Christianity taught that a merciful God requires his people to be merciful. Because God has loved us, we must love one another. But what was most revolutionary was that this principle for mercy and compassion must extend beyond other Christians and outward to all those who were in need. The tender compassion of those early Christians was so radical that one historian has described their work as, quote, a miniature welfare state in an empire which, for the most part, lacked social services. Here is how Tertullian, a second-century African theologian, described the compassion of these early Christians. Quote, There is no buying or selling of any sort of things of God. Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money as of a religion that has its price. On the monthly day, if he or she likes, each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure and only if he is able, for there is no compulsion 
and all is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund, for they are not taken thence and spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls of destitute means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. End quote. You see, the early Christians understood that even in a context where they were the persecuted minority, it was their mission and their charge to display Christ's compassion from their guts. That was what they were known for. So much so that in the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Julian launched a campaign to try and create pagan charities that would rival the charity of the church. He complained in one letter that the explosive growth of the church was caused by their moral character, even if they're pretending, and by their benevolence towards strangers. That's what they were known for. And so let me ask us this morning, is this what the church in the United States is known for today? Is this what we are known for? Now, there's exceptions, but on the whole, I fear that it is not. And I believe that much of the shrinking collapse and decay we see in our churches, the lack of conversions, the closure of churches, all has very little to do with our culture out there and has a lot to do about what's happening in here. We've lost our way. The renowned Anglican pastor, John Stott, once said this. He said, We should not ask what is wrong with the world, for that diagnosis has already been given. Instead, we should ask, What has happened to salt and light? What has happened to salt and light? Have we lost our way? Because if I'm being honest, and I hope you will too, I don't often feel this level of compassion from my gut. I am more often consumed with my own successes and finances and plans and worries to even be bothered by anyone else. I too often am tempted to turn my back on those in need, especially those I disagree with, rather than opening my heart toward them. And so this is why we need to answer our final question. How do we get it? How do we get this compassion from the gut? Look at verse 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In a world like ours, we might expect a more vigorous action to be demanded of us. Surely, Jesus wants us to plan and get together and scheme and be crafty, come up with new strategies. Sure he does. But Jesus said the most effective thing to do is pray. 
no matter how skilled we might think ourselves, no matter how able, no matter how great we might think our zeal is, we cannot do the work of the harvest. Only the Lord of the harvest can. Only the Lord can supernaturally fill us with the depths of his compassion, the compassion which is necessary for genuine mission and ministry to take place. So therefore, we pray to the one who is able to send out laborers into his harvest. Charles Octavius Booth was the founding pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Who knows what that church is famous for now? It's the first pastorate of Dr. King. In fact, I think they now renamed it to Dexter Avenue Baptist King Memorial Church or something like that. But Charles Booth, the first founding pastor of this church, and in his book, Plain Theology for Plain People, Booth saw the apostles' prayers in the book of Acts, which were followed by the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He saw that as a fulfillment of Jesus' words here in Matthew 9. And more than that, he exhorted us to see their example as a testament of what God will still do through us today. So Booth said this, quote, He said, the gracious Lord who answered their prayer is ready to answer similar requests from all his obedient servants. What wonders of power and grace may we not expect when with one accord the millions of believers in Christ throughout the world unite in earnest prayer to the God of all grace for a real Pentecostal season to be enjoyed by every nation and kindred and people and tongue under the whole heaven. What wonders and power of grace may we not expect if we make this our prayer? Would you be willing to pray to this end this morning that the Lord might send out laborers into his harvest who are filled with his compassion, compassion from the gut? I hope you will. But here's the catch. As we meditate on Christ's compassion and pray to this end that he might send out more laborers who are filled with his compassion, we might just find ourselves being overwhelmed by Christ's compassion and love. And it may be that through our prayers, the Lord stirs up his compassion deep in our guts. It may be that through our prayers for laborers to, send, to be sent into the harvest, the Lord intends to send us. To send us into our neighborhoods, to send us into those places in our city we've too long avoided. To send us into our workplaces. Maybe even to send us around the globe. So will you pray this prayer? Will you ask Christ to send you into the harvest, prayed, filled with his compassion. Let's pray to that end, even now.